Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. As some of you may know, over the past couple of years, I've done several webinars and video lectures on a variety of topics that also come up on this podcast. There is unfortunately a lack of qualified therapists who specialize in working with cult survivors and their concerned family members. And since I can only see a finite number of clients myself, I wanted to share insights from my 30 plus years of doing this work with as many people as possible. So in pursuit of that goal, I've made all of my recent video lectures available on my website rachelbernsteintherapy.com. You can find a link to the page in the show notes of this episode. There you'll find my lecture from the most recent conference of the International Cultic Studies Association, my, quote, Living in Freedom, unquote, series for survivors and their family members, and my recent lecture entitled Why Did I Stay?, which examines the many reasons that people have difficulty leaving high-control groups. We plan on adding more video lectures in the near future, so if you have topics you'd like to hear me cover, please feel free to reach out to us and make suggestions. So as regular listeners might know, we have released several episodes covering the highly controversial Christian College Bob Jones University. One of those episodes was with our social media manager and BJU alum, Andrew Pledger who has created a new podcast called Surviving BJU, on which I was actually recently a guest. So here is Andrew now to tell you a little bit about the show, which is also linked in the description of this episode. Are you curious about what life is like inside of a Christian cult? Do you want to hear stories of those who escaped and survived? Hello, I'm Andrew Pledger, and I do social media work for the Indoctrination Podcast, and I've been working on a limited podcast on Bob Jones University. I was involved with this group for over three and a half years. The podcast is called Surviving Bob Jones University, A Christian Cult, and it's out now. In this series, I share my own experiences of attending this school, which is a fundamentalist college that controls every aspect of its students' lives. I interview other survivors who left the cults and who are now rebuilding their lives. You'll hear about the isolation, control, and manipulation that happens at this university. You'll also hear from Rachel Bernstein as she offers insights on the college. The podcast is now available on all platforms where you can hear the full episode. Here is a preview of Rachel's interview on the podcast. It's just so incredible the amount of push for conformity and how much fear is used for conformity. And then the snitching. Almost every cultic system has a snitching part of it and that you get points for being a snitch. And there is the need for the leader to have intel. And there's the need for the leader to know that you're being watched so that you don't do anything you're not supposed to do. And a leader then can start this machine going by having other people operate the gears. Like they can just say, this is the rule. 
And now I'm going to elect people to be my law enforcement, my spiritual law enforcement. And then they're going to watch other people. And I can just sit back and know that this is in place and that people are going to do it because they know they're going to get points for it. Today on the show, we have Chad Harris and Lindsay Williams. They both grew up under the teachings of the Institute in Basic Life Principles cult, the IBLP, in their Advanced Training Institute homeschool program. They were also both featured in the popular Amazon docuseries, Shiny Happy People. Chad left those teachings behind in his mid-20s and went on a journey of deconstruction and learning that led him to become a vocal critic of Christian fundamentalism. He started telling his life story on TikTok in 2020. His goal is to see the IBLP shuttered once and for all, and those responsible for its harm brought to justice and accountability for their actions. Lindsay shares stories of her upbringing and how she worked to heal from the indoctrination and conditioning that controlled so much of her life. Because of the ongoing abuse perpetrated by IBLP and its teachings, she continues to tell her story in order to show other survivors there's a community waiting to embrace them as they leave and thrive in what she calls, quote-unquote, real life. Lindsay now works as a professional makeup artist and hairstylist in New York and Los Angeles, which she's done for the past 15 years. Her work has appeared in major magazines, beauty campaigns, commercials, films, music videos, and even on the red carpet. Lindsay says her career is the lifeboat that carried her away from the cult upbringing and helped bring color and joy into her life. It was my pleasure to speak with both of them. Their stories are so incredibly powerful. Are Chad and Lindsay now. Hello, Lindsay and Chad. I'm so happy to have you on. It is a total treat and a pleasure, and I can't wait for our conversation. There's so much to talk about. So can you just take a moment, uh, ladies first, Lindsay, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having us on. This is really, I've been looking forward to it. It's really exciting to talk to you. Um, my name is Lindsay Williams. Uh, most people at this point know me from Shiny Happy People on Amazon Prime. And uh, I was raised up in the Institute in Basic Life Principles, also known as IBLP. And uh, about 23 years ago, I got married and left all of that belief behind. And in the last three years, I've begun to, or I have deconstructed, gone through therapy, and just really worked my way out of all of the patriarchal mental control that was still holding on to me. So yeah, it's been quite a long journey. But as a, as I like to say in my real life now, I'm a makeup artist and a hairdresser. I've been doing so for about 15 years. I lived in New York City, and now I live in LA. So I do print work, film, commercials, red carpet, runway, all that kind of stuff. Oh, that's very cool. That's totally different. Uh, and I'm sure that feels really nice that you're living a very different life. It does. Um, okay. But I love that idea of though, working your way out of that patriarchy. And so I, I want to make a note to be able to come back to, you know, the way that you were able to do that. I know 
it it can sometimes be a lifelong work in progress because of the indoctrination. Yeah, I love that though, that I'm just going to be able to get into maybe some tools that you've been able to use and probably some new self-talk that you need to integrate. Okay. All right. And Chad, hello. Welcome. Introduce yourself, please. Oh, hello. And again, thank you so much for having us on. My name is Chad Harris. I also was on the docuseries Shiny Happy People, Duggar Family Secrets. Uh, I was the one who in the previews was there to tell you that World domination was the goal, which I had no idea they were going to use that. <laughs> but uh, it was um, it, it pretty much summed up my experience and what I was taught in the IBLP, which is the Institute in Basic Life Principles, the cult that I was raised in. Uh, I started out as a child in an independent fundamental Baptist preacher's home. Uh, we joined the IBLP when I was about seven years old. Uh, I had already been homeschooled at that point. I'm the first fully homeschooled child of my family. I'm the fourth of six. My parents joined the Quiverful movement at the encouragement of an OBGYN. And from there, they all went into uh, IBLP together and joined the Advanced Training Institute or ATI homeschooling program that IBLP offered. So I learned a lot of uh, terrible lessons from IBLP, a lot of uh, very mind-controlling talk, a very patriarchal system, as uh, Lindsay was talking about. And um, it really did a lot of damage to me emotionally, mentally, and in just about every other way. Uh, I left all the fundamentalist teachings I've been raised with behind. Uh, I started my deconstruction process in my mid-20s, and it's a lifelong process. I'm still working on it today, but I feel like at this point, the world needs to know what IBLP did and not just them, but everyone else who enabled them and who enabled this abuse to so many children. And the fact that IBLP is still out there today, uh, personally, I think they need to be stopped. And I'm hoping that the docuseries and so many other people stepping forward will make that happen. Wow. You know, when you're talking, and thank you for that, you, you know, you're talking about learning all these terrible lessons. One of the things that I talked about in an outro, the one more thing before you go uh, for a previous episode was about how women coming out of these kinds of groups really suffer with having to redo their own vision of themselves and what they deserve and how to speak up and what is okay and what's not okay and the idea of consent, et cetera, and rights. And then Boys and men are equally scarred because they're not given the lesson of uh, being able to kind of honor someone else who is of a different gender in the same way that they get honored and to see them as equals and to know that they have rights also, which puts both people, right? both people from different genders in a very disadvantageous spot when you're trying to figure out how to be in the world and come across like a person who cares about other people, but also as a person who can protect themselves. So it does a number on everyone. And I know we often talk about the the impact on women, same as you're saying, and that's why I'm so happy you're talking about this. There's a great impact on men and just not walking around feeling as entitled. There are men I've talked to who said that it was hard to give up, but once they did, they felt like more of a human being and how nice that is to kind of land, you know, and be able to see people eye to eye. And so I want to make sure to be able to get back to that too. And also when you were talking about the people who have enabled this to keep going, people are sometimes shocked after there is any kind of expose done about a particular group that it still exists. And there are people who will still support it. 
um, sometimes blindly, sometimes not, but they still, it's still their world and it's still what they care about. And they still think there's something worthy there of holding on to and maintaining. But for both of you, you said goodbye. And so I want to make sure in these stories to get to what that turning point was. It's usually cumulative and, you know, what that moment was for you. So Lindsay, if you can take us a little bit into your background, then tell us a little bit more about your growing up story and then getting to what was starting to mount over time that made it where you just couldn't stay? Yeah, I'm going to try to give the cliff notes of this. <laughs> because you're very right in that it starts to compound and it, it just builds on itself. And you can only handle so many bricks on your back before you truly do your back sways. You're like, I think I can handle this. I'm supposed to handle it. My religious beliefs say that all suffering is God's pathway for us and that there's more blessing the more you suffer. So you have you're gaslighting yourself into not getting out of a situation I was brought into the Institute of Basic Life Principles around six years old. And then at eight years old, my parents decided to do the homeschooling program, the Advanced Training Institute, which is known as ATI. So if you guys have seen the Duggar family at all, or you saw the documentary, when they're doing the homeschooling program and the wisdom booklets and all of this material that we were receiving from this organization, it was pretty much all biblical indoctrination materials. It was not a, um, a linear education that built upon itself. It was just very scatterbrained all over the place and really just meant to continue to push Bill Gothard's narrative of the Christian life on really young minds, um, which, you you know, I'm sure as psychologists would say, this is full on like brainwashing. And it's really you're we were so limited as homeschool kids. We were isolated from the world. We were limited from information. There was no outside sources. There was no radio. There was no television. There was there were no newspapers. There were no magazines. So there's no access to anything that's going on beyond your bubble of your home and what your parents and or your pastor at church are feeding you. So I've always had a bit of a feisty, <laughs> willful, forceful personality. And as they love to call it in IBLP, you know, a willful, rebellious spirit. So it's always a negative when you're curious and you have this pushing forceful energy, which I look at it now and I'm like, this is a nuclear energy that could have gone to really great places, but instead it was suffocated. And so the longer I became suffocated in this, not even realizing that my energy just wanted to burst out and explore and learn, my world got smaller and smaller. So it, the suffocation of that, even though I was so ignorant to what was going on outside the world, I was so aware of how much I didn't know. And that scared me. Because that meant everyone else in the world was at a better advantage than I was. But I was constantly being told my, my female role. Well, it, you don't need to know math. You don't need to know science. You don't need to know all of these other things for the world because your only true purpose in the world is to marry a godly man, procreate, and homeschool again. It's just a, a full cycle. So I already had, like, my future was written for me. And again, having this, like, <laughs> this energy that I do... It just didn't feel right. Who are you going to talk to? Your patriarchal father? You know, <laughs> like that's not going to work. And you're a submissive, also willful mom, but desirous to toe the line of 
trying to be a submissive wife because she also had her, I'm sure, her difficulties of being married to a controlling patriarchal husband. But I I also endured a lot of corporal punishment. Um, as you guys, if you've seen Shiny Happy People in episode two, there's a very deep discussion on spanking. And so I dealt with that from about the age of four to six till about 16. It obviously went beyond what it ever should have. I don't believe in hitting children at all, um, obviously because of my experiences, but also I just think it's so wrong. Um, and it's another way to train a child instead of raise and nurture a child. So by behavioral abuse, I learned to just stay in my place. I didn't want to. My energy was like, no way. But I was hit enough that I'm like, well, I'm just going to Again, take that ball of vicious energy and just, I don't know where it's supposed to go. It just stays inside of me. So when I was about 18 years old, I ran into Bill Gothard, the leader of this ministry, and he invited me to come to headquarters. So I fast-tracked myself up to headquarters at 18 years old to work with his ministry in a (laughs) a position of semi-authority. Families, mothers were calling me to ask, for advice on how to raise their children. What did I know? All I knew were the materials that I had been taught. And now I'm just brazenly, in my mind now, brazenly telling mothers how they can teach their children as a child that was taught this. (laughs) You know, it was a mind screw. Um, you know, and at the same time, I'm also subjected to Bill Gothard and to his attention and attraction to me. And he began to want a lot of prayer time and prayer sessions that beca- that were too intimate. But I, again, I was not taught no, or this is uncomfortable. This is awkward. Maybe we shouldn't kneel by a couch and be pressed against each other while we pray. And he's in control. You know, and and I've been taught to reverence him and any man, especially any male in authority. Um, and for about three years, I had to endure Bill Gothard's. Um, I've through therapy, it was sexual assault. That's still hard for me to to utter out because I always think to myself, well, sexual assault is if they're actually touching sexual parts of you. But the advancement and the the not wanting it and it going on for so long, my therapist was like, this is what happened and this is the definition of it. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, well, that is even worse. And having the ownership of now that term, that that is what happened, infuriated me even further. I was not given the, the type of information I needed to actually protect myself. And so in that journey, I'm denying my own integrity. I'm denying and rejecting my own autonomy and that that conflict of knowing it inside of my like feeling it but not having words for it and also not having the ability to act upon it from fear i mean it was just so tumultuous inside of myself oh my goodness okay so there's so much more here i know i'm just like how wanted... do i cliff note this right <laughs> here's my life in 10 words or less um but i think It's very interesting because you tap into something that I find a lot where abuse, neglect, um, a kind of negligence of endangerment. These are terms that go way underreported when you don't know that's what's happening to you. And especially if you are supposed to downplay if you're ever unhappy, you know, with kind of anything. And if 
something does happen to you, then you're supposed to either be fine with it or you're supposed to blame yourself somehow that you brought it on, you know. So then how would you even think to go to the police? Because you'd assume they would respond the same way other people have responded to you. Well, what did you do? Or that's not what that was. Or he just loves you. Or that's God. Or whatever. And so... I think it's really helpful when people go for therapy or people talk to friends and someone can give a label to something. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're automatically right. It's still good for you to do your research and see, look it up and see if it qualifies. But if you find that it does, those are those moments that go right through you like a dagger. Like, oh, okay, that is what happened. And that's probably why it impacted me. And that's probably why I felt uncomfortable or I felt dirty or I didn't want to spend time with this person. I didn't feel safe. I didn't know why, but I didn't feel safe, you know? And so, yeah, I think any unwanted touching um, is not okay. But also when you have a, um, a pastor role or you're a teacher, therapist, anyone who's in a position of authority, you are not to do those things. And people growing up in these environments don't know that. And so I think, you know, yeah, you're at a disadvantage of being able to protect yourself because you don't know what's happening to you. And you're trusting that person. You're, you've been, I mean, I grew up from like six years old admiring this person. My parents idolized this person. This person was a perfect prophet who could do no wrong. The concept of him doing something wrong was just off radar. And so I, yeah, I, I was aware of his his power. I was aware of his godliness, but I still felt that it was so wrong. And he was also going against his own teachings you know, women weren't supposed to fraternize with men, especially single women and single men and married too. But it just, it was so awkward to me where I'm like, you always say don't be alone with, with another, the opposite gender, so that you don't give this appearance of evil, that something bad is happening or something sexual is going on. And you're causing other Christians to stumble when they see these situations. Um, it's a very weird um take on scripture. Um, but it, it's, I felt like, wow, if someone ever saw this happening, we, I would be in trouble. Him? Probably not, because again, that's the way the patriarchy <laughs> works. It's always the innocent young women that end up actually getting in trouble, and it's the abusive men that end up, you know, having the time of their lives, <laughs> doing whatever they want to do. But as far as getting out, um, I was I'm very lucky because I ended up finding my husband, or I should say he found me, working at headquarters. And um, I won't go deep into the story, but he, we had a very rough time at being able to get married because um, entering into courtship uh, is definitely um, a tenant of IBLP and ATI. And my father, again, being a domineering, controlling, narcissistic patriarch, <laughs> was not okay with me getting married at the age of 21. Um, I don't know what he was waiting for. I was given so many excuses from people that were in authority over me because I would not be able to marry on my own. If I did, I would be out from God's protection. I would be out from his love. I would be in alignment with disobedience. That fear alone from all of the conditioning of my upbringing, um, I was too scared to run away and marry the person I loved. So I sat and wait for my father to approve, and his father ended up getting involved because he was like, look, I don't know why you're not willing to let my son marry your daughter. 
you know, he loves her. He's miserable without her. Um, and when we did finally get the approval to begin courting, we're not even engaged. This is just, hey, now you have the approval to talk to each other on the telephone <laughs> um, and have oversight every time you're in a room together. But it, when we started courting, Bill Gothard actually wrote a letter to the guy that wanted to marry me and basically told him that I was not ready for marriage yet and that Bill had inserted himself as my spiritual father and that um, I had many years of single service for the Lord to still serve, meaning go work at Bill's ministry for free. And um, he also said that I had a lot of spiritual growing to do because I had a willful spirit. I was not aware of this letter until after we got married. I'm really glad because I think I would have rained down hellfire on me, Bill, at that point. Um, I'm like, you are about to screw up the one thing that has given and brought me joy in my life. How dare you? Um, but we did end up getting married about uh, nine months after beginning our courtship. And um, honestly, that was probably our wedding day was probably the first day of the rest of my better life. And even though he was raised the same way that I was, he... Being a guy, um, first, he's lucky to have been a guy because he could sort of set his own rules for how he wanted to move forward in life. And I'm grateful that he was a kind, loving person and not interested in becoming a dominant patriarchal man. And he's a very gentle, wonderful person who was not, not interested in us having to be this strict religious family. And um, so I was very glad that we just, we started to slowly just disintegrate away from all of the past. It wasn't like, okay, I'm no longer a Christian and I'm no longer going to toe the line of IBLP's teachings. I just was like, eh, it's not really for me today. I think I'm going to wear some pants and do some stuff, you know, but I didn't start deconstructing until about three years ago. It's so interesting. I think also with your husband, you know, if his character is not really in line with how he was being raised to be. That's also something, and I and I think about you, Chad. I mean, that there are people who will say to me when they come out of these kinds of organizations, I have these two parts of myself, and I need to figure out who I am. I need to figure out maybe how to merge them, because I had this false front, the person I knew I was supposed to be, right? And pretend to be at times and somehow be okay with certain things that just didn't sit right with me. But I was afraid of being honest about that and how liberating it is, like for your husband, to be able to say, no, I get to be who I really am and who I want to be, the kind of person I want to be now, but only now being free from being this sort of alternate self to please the people around me. And I get to be nicer. I get to be more respectful. And you have to wonder about an organization where being nicer and being respectful is not acceptable um, because I think that's diagnostic, of course, about the organization itself, just slightly, right? Um, that's fair. <laughs> I, right? And I also, that's fair. And I also think I want to come back to just the use of terminology. I made a note of this too, that we'll come back to just the fact that the names of the organizations don't say anything about it being a church or religious at all. So it sounds like a college, right? It sounds like it's a legit thing. Uh, which is always that was by design it's on purpose, <laughs> by design, right? Yeah, a lot of these places are where people have no idea what they're getting involved in, and yeah, you wonder why it is that they're working so hard to hide what they are. Anyway, so Lindsay, I'm sure we will come back to more of your story. I want to bring Chad in to tell you that you know, again, having a male and female 
representative from these kinds of things is just really beautiful. Um, just to find out from your perspective, Chad, what your life was like and what helped you get to that point of having the bravery to leave. Well, I do want to preface, you know, uh, speaking of being you know, a male who was raised in IBLP, I always want to preface before I go into it that the abuses of IBLP were targeted at women and women were made to be the most vulnerable and were always most at risk and more heavily abused in IBLP. And I never want to, you know, make sure that, you know, my story or the story of men in IBLP ever eclipses that. Because even though we were definitely abused and there was definite, you know, horrible things that happened to us too, you know, ultimately, and I love the fact that, you know, the conversation around ab abuse has been centered on the women who are in it. So I never want to change that. And I do want to make a point of that before I go into it. But that being said, for those of us who were raised male in IBLP, the expectations seem to be different for depending on your personality. So for myself, I was one of those people who was never really comfortable with the idea of being this big, manly G.I. Joe male who went out there and, you know, was ready to beat the devil with a stick and, you know, lead this charge toward, you know, this new era of patriarchal Christianity, which they promised us. We They promised we would be the leaders in this world domination, essentially, of what we were going to bring into the world. And it never really appealed to me because, first of all, that sounded like a lot of work. Um, and... And we were always told, like, you know, this is on you. You're going to be accountable to God for this. You know, you're going to be the person who answers for how your family turned out and stuff like that. And a lot of men, a lot of my contemporaries and cohorts in the uh, in the cult, uh, a, a lot of them just took that to mean, oh, I get to do whatever I want. But for people like me, I saw it as, oh, my God, I can't screw up. Like, you know, this is this is all this responsibility on me and I, I don't know what to do with it. And I was never really an athletic type. I was never the kind to go out hunting or to go out, uh, you know, play football or anything. I had a Commodore 128 computer and that was my favorite <laughs> thing to play with growing up. OK, so, you know, I'd never really fit that mold. And it was helped in no small part for my parents, literally, at, you know, talking about the physical discipline. They would introduce me to complete strangers as the kid we beat the most. And they were not kidding. Uh, I suffered the most physical punishment of any of my siblings. And quite literally, I was beaten until I could not register an emotional response. None of my other siblings, to my knowledge, ever went through that. My older brother especially. Now, I was spared having to go to any of the training centers or headquarters uh, that IBLP had because we lived in Europe for most of my teen years. My parents couldn't afford to send me back to the States just to do that, which I'm glad I skipped over that part of the abuse. But, you know, when I came back and I found that so many of my friends who stayed through uh, ATI and IBLP, who came back from those training centers and had seen things that they wouldn't talk about or had experienced abuse in their families and at the training centers and at headquarters, when I started finding out that all these things were happening and I had not been told the truth about them. And I was wondering why my friends were so different when I came back to the States as an adult. It started hitting me. I was like, oh, no, like, you know, it got worse while I was away. And that was one of the things that really cemented in my mind that, hey, something is desperately wrong here. Wow. Right. So if you don't fit a mold, then already you feel like an outsider. You're already you might feel like you are not measuring up if you're not a he-man. <laughs> whatever that means. There is something so interesting, though, I, I 
you know, I talk to people a lot about this, that when they're raised in environments where taking control over other people, having dominion is considered a power and that, you know, you're a man for being able to do it. I actually think it takes 10 times more strength to have self-control than to control somebody else, than to overpower, but to have power over you where you say, actually, no, I don't actually want to do that. I don't feel like hunting. I want to play games. I, I'm that person. I'm Ferdinand the Bull, right? I am a person who wants to smell the flowers and look cool, be a dude, but still, you know what? I want to enjoy life. And I don't want to have to impose my will on other people in order to feel like a strong human being. It's taking a big risk, also knowing that you were introduced that way as the kid they beat the most, which is horrifying. And I'm so sorry. And so you had to tolerate a lot to just be you. I don't know how you did it. I don't either, honestly. Um, well, th they did call me a strong-willed child, which I know is uh, terminology that's used by people who were raised in uh, the James Dobson focus on the family um, style of uh, upbringing, which my folks also follow for a time. But um, I, I maybe they were right on that one. Maybe I was strong-willed, but in a good way. This is something that Lindsay and I talked about the night that we watched the docuseries, because episode two with the demonstration, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it, there is a demonstration of physical punishment in episode two. And it was hard for both of us to watch, but... Like I told Lindsay that night, because we were talking on the phone, we never broke. Like, ultimately, you know, for all the times that they tried to, in their words, break our will and to make us completely submissive to what they wanted to teach us and what they wanted us to propagate and bring forward, we never actually broke. We may have played the part sometimes, and we may have bent a little, but we never became fully what they wanted. And I actually take pride in that, because... One of the reasons I got out of fundamentalism was I was tired of seeing people being hurt. And I'm just proud to no longer be part of something that hurts people. Ooh, you got tired of seeing people get hurt. Again, this idea that in order for you to follow your conscience and to leave something then that is against it, that really where people are being mistreated, it, it says so much about the environment that you were in, what was supported there that shouldn't have ever been supported, what was made okay, what was made for your benefit somehow. I think about, you know, when you're both talking about the spankings or you're talking about being beaten, you know, there's no reason to ever beat a child. It's true. There's no reason even to yell at a child unless they're about to run out into traffic and they you need to get their attention. My father used to sell the tell me that the only time he ever yelled at his kids was in airports because he had to make sure we heard him. <laughs> but that was it. Like, well, you're going to miss the flight. Come on, come on, come on. But, right, that was it. Like, if it's for your benefit, like, we are going to miss a plane or a train station, whatever, where there was loudness. Like, you just had to talk over it. But if your kid speaks the same language as you, like, just talk to them. Just say. And there is something that is really interesting about this idea of having to beat someone's will out of them. And here, it never worked. And I love that it never worked. And I also understand that sometimes you had to play along with pretending that it was working because that was for your survival too. I think that's a really smart adaptation when people unfortunately have to learn to fake it in order to make it. 
again, says something about the lack of health in the environment, not your lack of health. And so I wonder just, Chad, sort of when you came out then, did you have this feeling like the world outside is a kinder place? And what was your proof of that? Well, at first it was a bit intimidating because when I left fundamentalism, uh, it kind of hit me that this whole idea that everything would be planned for me by my authorities and I just had to follow the script and everything would work out. That got pulled out from under me. And I'm in my mid-20s. I'm well into my working life at this point. I'm living alone. And all of a sudden, it was an overwhelming sense of, oh, crap, now I really have to figure out who I am and what I want to do with my life. So it, you know, it was a startling realization when I was in my 20s. But I did notice, and this is one of the things that really uh, stood out to me when I first started working my first real adult job, I like to say, one of my instructors uh, was a lesbian woman, and I thought immediately as soon as I got paired with her that I was screwed. I was taught that all lesbians were just there to make sure that men fail and that uh, she was going to intentionally sabotage me and I would never get the job I was training for. And come to find out, you know, she was very strict. But come to find out, she had had military training, and that was just how she trained everybody. And she really wanted to make sure that I would pass, you know, the final exams to get my job. And I did, with her help. We had a sit-down talk about it. She said, look, she said, I could be a little harsh, but she said, I genuinely want you to pass. She said, yeah, I'm here to make sure you're successful, and I'm here to make sure that the job gets done correctly, because I take this seriously. She taught me a lot, and we became the best of friends at work and beyond. We're still friends to this day. And that was the first time I had seen someone who I'd just been told blanketly that there was this huge conspiracy against, you know, specifically what I stood for and myself. I actually got to interact with someone who did not fit that mold or did not fit that idea that had been planted into my head. And then I started asking, well, what else is wrong? Like, wh who else am I not trusting that, you know, could very well be a friendship I'm missing out on or experiences I don't know about and such? And that was one of the things that just really uh, started that cognitive dissonance that I started questioning, uh, like, hey, is everything really so bad? Am I? Is it me against this huge worldly conspiracy? Because we were literally taught that everything outside of the cult was set up to make us fail. And that was the first time I really had to negotiate the fact that what I was told was wrong. And that just led to a lot of dominoes falling. Right. You know, it happens almost across the board that People are made to feel fearful of the world outside and fearful of themselves, that they can't trust themselves too. And so I wonder about that for both of you. What were you told? Yes, the, so the system in the world is set up for you, you to fail. I mean, that is so handicapping. And, you know, why would you then want to take the risk of entering the world outside? So I wonder what else you were told about the world, but what else you were told about yourself to make you feel like you needed the structure of you know, the institutes in order to keep you safe from yourself. So, Chad, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? And then I'll switch to Lindsay. I actually have here the handbook for the Alert Cadet Challenge that <gasps> I took in 1997. Yes. That's um, awesome. And for background, the Alert program stood for Airland Emergency Resource Team. It was Gothard's attempt to have like a military alternative for young men in ATI. And you saw a little bit of that in Shiny Happy People. So they had a junior version of it for those of us who were not quite teenagers yet. Uh, when I was 12, uh, back in 1997, I actually spent my 12th birthday doing this in Knoxville at their large uh, ATI conference. And 
in the midst of all, like, seriously, there was page upon page talking about how we had to learn all these manly activities like orienteering, repelling, doing an obstacle course, all of which I failed at, by the way, miserably. And I was told I wasn't spiritual enough to pass them. But on the back of this book, there is a song that we sang every day. And the lyrics are, For our weapons are not carnal, nor our war with flesh and blood. But to pull down Satan's strongholds, we are mighty through our God, casting down imaginations that rise up against his hand, boldly bringing to subjection every thought to his command. So the idea was, and one of the things that was emphasized to us that week that really stood out to me, was not only were we going out there facing out or facing this world system that was pitted against us, but also our own minds, our own brains were not to be trusted because we had to take every single thought that came into our heads and evaluate, does this match with what I've been taught? Does this match with what, what my authorities have been telling me? Or is this my own sinful being trying to be myself? And of course, you know, all that was, you know, bull hockey because uh, the, the, the sinful part of you was just simply your natural being. Like, you know, we, we were teenagers. We were just, uh, we were still learning about ourselves. We were going through changes and stuff like that. It, it was just so insidious how they pitted us, not only against everything outside the cult, but against ourselves. We couldn't trust our own thoughts. And we were taught that that went along with this whole idea of being these warriors for God. It was just horrible. That is quite horrible. And I think that idea of imaginations, so I know having talked to people who, you know, raised in Bible-based groups where they were punished for using their imagination, they were punished for any kind of creative thought or any individual thought because imagination is your imagination. It's from your mind, your so source of different kind of othered thinking. And, and it is something quite beautiful. It's what fuels art, it fuels writing you know, fuels the ideas that can change the world. Like, let's think of things that don't exist yet and try to make them happen. But it was not at all okay to have it and use it here. That's so interesting. So, right. So you learned you had to be just like everyone else. And you had to think just like you were told to think. But also this idea that you had to learn these skills in order to protect the world, in order to protect, you know, to fight Satan. Um, I don't know anyone who learned how to climb a rope who's ever needed to use it unless they <laughs> join the army. But I think that the idea that because you failed, you weren't somehow spiritual enough. The diagnoses given to you, I'm sure, is something that you've had to work to undo, like being told that something is because of something else that is totally unrelated to, and you've had to kind of detach those connections. That's a lot of work. Okay, so now to you, Lindsay, same idea. Go ahead. I would add to Chad, because um, as a female, it's everything Chad said except for the, you know, warrior <laughs> alert <laughs> alert activities for the female, but we're meant to be empty vessels for the Lord. And so you have to empty everything about yourself your personality, your thoughts, your ideas, your emotions, your curiosities, your creativity. It just all has to get emptied out of you because you only should be filled by God and the Holy Spirit and God's word 
and Bill Gothard's word, a.k.a. God via Bill and his teachings. So you couldn't have a creative thought. No one wants you to have an imagination. That's the devil's playground. That's going to that's gonna give, they have this, um, I think they showed it in the documentary, but uh, it looks like a little chessboard and there's little castles that sit on it. You, If you have thoughts that are not of God, meaning within strict alignment with Scripture and Bill Gothard's teachings, you are giving little castles and ground over to Satan. And so now, because I'm curious, because I want to play piano and I want to play secular songs that might have a beat to it, I am now giving those grounds, those little chess pieces over to Satan and I'm becoming more of the world. I'm becoming um, a, a woman who is not aligned with God. Therefore, I'm seen as being out from under authority. Like you said, there's so many different things that don't make sense. But when that's all you do know, it they make it make sense. So <laughs> you're like, oh, no, I, I, I just it was daydreaming about something and... <gasps> That's the devil's playground. And you, no, stop that. So you have all these thought-stopping techniques based on fear. It's irrational. When you try to get out of all of this, even though I did, like Chad did as well, you get out of all of this teaching. I'm married. I'm living my own life. There's still so much that your brain is consistently trying to process, but then it stops it as you're mid-process. Like, nope, I can't do that. Oh, I wanted to see this movie. No, wait, I can't see that movie because this ha it has this, this, this in it. Oh, I, I wanted to wear these pants, but then I'm going to defraud people. You, you just, you're so over flooded by how do I just live my life and not have all of this haunting me and, and just uh, harassing me in my mind. Um, I was definitely, the body was separate from the mind for me my body ended up taking the brunt of all of that uh, nuclear energy and holding it all inside. And at certain points along my life, I've had many different medical issues due to inflammation and due to having to harbor all of this inability to expel anything outside of myself, to not be able to speak up, to not be able to be angry, to not be able to have joyous emotions, because if they're too joyous, then that's arrogant and prideful. You become a very numb person to your own self because you, you've shut all of the systems down especially when you're in decades of growing up this way, that becomes your normal way of dealing with everything in the world. So you, I have, I had no idea how I really felt. I knew how inside maybe things made me feel, but like you said earlier, I didn't have the words for it. I would get an emotion that would come up and I would stuff it back down and not even explore it because it just some, I couldn't explain it. I just knew it wasn't right to have. So they've taken away your right to even have your own feelings, your own thoughts, um, your own expressions. And, and it also bundles in obviously into sexuality. If you happen to be someone within the LGBTQIA plus community, this, I cannot even imagine what this upbringing would have been like for someone like that given myself even just being a heterosexual female and how much it suffocated me. And then also trying to have that identity. I mean, so I relate so much to the community because I know what it's like to have all of yourself stripped from you and being told you cannot be, you are not any of this. You can only be this. We, we prescribe this to you. Mm. 
just thinking about the flood of thoughts in reaction to something and needing to sift through them to see which ones are accurate and which ones aren't, which ones are yours, which ones aren't, and just quieting your mind and just sitting with something and just having new thoughts about it that are going to be more accurate is quite a to-do. It's reminding me of a of a client who grew up a Christian scientist who also was very detached from her body. Any pain was that she needed to read the Bible more. I mean, she, she got migraines and but was told to read while she was getting her migraines, which made everything worse. But then she had to read more because they weren't going away. But she left and went to the doctor for the first time in her late 20s and was terrified that God was going to punish her for it. But she was having a consistent amount of pain, internal pain. And, the do- and she's very bright. And the doctor said, what are you feeling? She said, I- I'm feeling something. Well, what, what does it feel like? I don't know. It- is it painful or on a scale? I don't, I can't. I have no words to describe what it's, it just is something. Well, where is it? I don't know. And, um, and she also had just learned to endure pain. So by the time she got to the doctor, I'm sure she was in excruciating pain. And because she couldn't describe what it was and how it felt, there was no way that the doctor could treat her. I mean, she was really, she was really put at a disadvantage as so many people are when they need to advocate for themselves after this. But the mind-body connection is, is a huge one. And I think, you know, I, I think about the things that are taken away from people in these environments, and they're usually the things that threaten being able to have control. And so I think when people are more aware of themselves, that threatens control. So having someone detach from themselves makes them much easier to control. It's interesting. It's really, I mean, it's like thievery, you know, taking that away from someone. Yes. And it, and it, it also gives them every excuse in the book as to why you shouldn't be anything. You know, if you ask a question, well, you don't need to be asking questions. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to push against what we've told you. Um, or, well, why would you behave like that? you should be humble and you should be quiet before God. There's always a default to why we need to be even more empty. And if I can add to that, actually, some of the most brilliant, some of the most talented, and some of the most full of potential human beings I've ever met in my life were some of the people I grew up with and some of the people I met in the cult and some of the people who I've come to know outside of the cult who are also in it. And Lindsay is definitely toward the top of that list, trust me. But to have that potential be restructured to benefit the machinations of this cult and this man that used the cult to build his little empire just infuriates me to this day because one of the things that we did cover in shiny happy people as well is that he would take you know people like Lindsay or people like you know some of my friends and have them work menial jobs promising them that they would get experience to become you know these doctors or lawyers or something in the future and he had them working in kitchens or working as personal servants essentially to maintain his personal life as well as like just the small tasks around the um around the Institute or uh, to pose as licensed counselors, you know, for, for families. He barely lifted a finger himself. Um, and he just expected all these miners to do all this work for him. And he stunted everyone's potential by telling them that, you know, by doing these, these things that were not helping them develop at a crucial time in their lives, I believe that he ruined so many potential lives and so many potential careers of, of so many people that we'll never get back. 
And it just infuriates me that to this day, you know, IBLP has stopped their uh, training centers, thankfully. And, uh, you know, Gothard himself is now out and he's doing his own thing, but they have never faced any accountability for any of that. And one of these days, I wish something would happen to where they'd have to. Right. When you say that, you know, Goddard is out there doing his thing, what is he doing right now? He's got this grift going on uh, where he claims that he has a university course that involves quoting scripture yourself at night. I'm not good enough to make any of this up. He says that you can you can start working on a doctorate as early as age five by quoting scripture to yourself before you go to bed every night and by following whatever teachings he was able to scrounge up from IBLP when he left. And he has constantly um, posted that he is seeking uh, reinstatement at IBLP as their leader again. He has said this on social media several times. IBLP, uh, in recent court documents, has very strongly uh, told the courts that that is not happening, <laughs> especially given, given, given everything that has happened uh, in, with the docuseries and uh, all the other press and, of course, the books by Jill and Ginger Duggar. So, you know, he is still uh, at age 88 trying to squeeze as much as he can out of the people who will still follow him. Someone who has a grift to begin with, that this is usually their skill. And that's kind of it. I often say that cult leaders would never survive in the wild. Like they need to use people. They need to manipulate in order to receive. They usually can't even make a living by themselves. So it's interesting because they're usually the least qualified to be, you know, to get a job, to again, have marketable anything really, except they know how to take power away from other people and kind of step on their backs. He is a one trick pony. When you think about it, he's a one-trick pony and a, and a, a brilliant marketer. That was his, um, I guess, his crowning glory is that he knew how to market it, everything to look so prestigious. Like you said, it looked like a university or a school from the outside and something just so academically informative and the titles and even the way that he would print the books to make them look like encyclopedias and um, all the shiny bindings with gold embossed print. And it's just, and yet it's so, so damaging and absolutely not an education whatsoever. Incredible. Right. So we were going to come back to the name because, or the names even, that neither of them say church or religion. And so just as you were alluding to, Lindsay, I know, Chad, you said that was by design. And so let's talk a little bit more about the deceptive marketing here and what impression it gives people. Well, when he started out, it was called the Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts. And it came about in the 60s and 70s, where he would just take these overhead projectors and go around the country telling people, look, you know, there's a lot of societal uh, upheaval going on. You know, there was, of course, Vietnam, there was the sexual revolution, uh, the civil rights movement. And his message was something that would appeal to a very conservative crowd. We need to get back to authority in this country. That was his that was his selling point. Everyone needs to understand what authority is and get back to it. Then we can make the country great. So that was his first grift, youth conflicts. And then he built the seven basic life principles uh, on top of that and renamed it the Institute and in Basic Life Principles and tried to expand it to multiple different avenues of trying to get his message out there. There were so many things besides the homeschooling portion 
that he attempted, uh, such as a law school. Of course, we already talked about the alert program. Uh, he tried to get into the house plant fertilization business at one point with a product called Sonic Bloom. He, he tried to take over orphanages in Eastern Bloc countries and in Russia proper. Like basically anywhere where he saw an opportunity to use these principles and to use this concept of authority. Anytime he saw an area where he could move into like a conservative, troubled youth um, grift and everything, he would go for it. And I think he struck gold with the homeschooling portion, and that allowed him to just go nuts with whatever he whatever he thought would be something that he could sell from, from there. The reason it's not called a church, or the re reason it doesn't say anything about religion, is, in fact, marketing. And he didn't want to limit his audience. The whole concept behind IBLP was that it was non-denominational. Some of our best friends in IBLP were, in fact, Presbyterian, and my dad was an independent fundamental Baptist pastor. We wouldn't sit next to each other at church any other time, but we would definitely go to conferences together. So he broadened his, you know, principles and everything to where he could cast a wide net. And eventually, he was able to come up with a secularized version of the principles and start teaching them to police departments, start teaching them in after-school programs, uh, and essentially anywhere where he thought he could market it, he would go for it. So that's basically why he hid it behind these very generic blasé terms. How boring does Institute and basic life principles sound, but also how prestigious to the people he's trying to market to it. Right. And basic life principles, meaning like this is somehow appropriate for everybody. Yeah. And it's simple. Yeah. This isn't hard to follow. This is so basic. It's a basic, seven basic non-optional principles is how he used to grift it for a really long time. I think he took away the non-optional because it was sounding so severe when he started to get backlash later on. I've always been tickled by the, the titles that um, under the Institute and in Basic Life Principles, he had two seminars. The basic seminar so you go to the basic seminar, that's the first one. Then you go to the advanced seminar. That's it. Like, like oh, I'm going to go to the basic seminar. This is going to be so easy. And it's a week long. And then, and anyone can come. You don't have to be a Christian even. You can bring your friends. Um, this was his, op you know, to the world. Anyone can come if they want to, because, you know, money. Then, but your barrier to entry for the advanced seminar, you have to take the basic. So who doesn't want to like continue on and go into an advanced information? But after that, he created the men's manuals, volume one and two, specifically for men and how they can be spiritual leaders. He grew the financial freedom seminar so that you could be financially free according to <laughs> scriptural principles. But underneath the Institute and in Basic Life Principles for homeschooling, he starts the advanced training institute. <laughs> And again, it's just like this basic and advanced and basic and advanced. He started the basic care program, which was healthcare. <laughs> yes, he was trying to do healthcare. It also underneath that like umbrella of basic care, he tried to start a midwifery program, which we've learned more details about this and it is horrific. Um, but it, who was this person except for an imaginative marketer? He himself just had a bunch of imagination, and these programs financed him to fuel his crazy imaginations, and no one was stopping him. And everybody believed anything that he put out 
I struggle with this a lot um, in my own head because I'm like, how can people be so complicit to something so simplistic? Like, like at any point, did you not along the way go, oh, I don't know, this doesn't feel right. But he warms you into it. The basic seminar, the advanced seminar. Now let's homeschool our kids. Oh, look at all these great programs. And it, it's like being in an MLM. You're like, oh, and if I do this, then I'm going to reach this level. And now I want my kids to be involved in all of these programs. So again, he's just a really, really smart, grifty marketer. Matter of fact, at one point, uh, Lindsay, didn't he ask you to come up with a program? He did. <laughs> he did. He did. When I when I got in trouble at headquarters, I was sent away um, because I, you know, again, I had done all these wrong things according to their rules. But um, he wanted me to go to this training center, which I did for five months. And he's like, well, well while you're down there, um, you should create a program for young women to help them avoid the pitfalls that you fell into so that they can have a stronger spiritual life. And I'm like, oh, at 21, I'm sure I am the person who should be put with this responsibility to what? Create something out of thin air like he has done his entire life? I not one second sat down and ever tried to contemplate what what could I do to help other girls? Because even at that point, I was like, just don't be here. <laughs> just don't. <laughs> here's here's my one-step program. Run. <laughs> End of story. <laughs> I don't think Bill would have approved. <laughs> basic, basic getaway, girls. <laughs> I love that. Lindsay, life coach. Run. <laughs> That's awesome. I love the phrase too, being complicit to something so simplistic. That's a t-shirt right there. Yeah. Uh, you're have it. It's yours because you said it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but I I think it's really incredible, just the hubris, just the entitlement, just the idea. Also, taking off an orphanage? What? I mean, that is just horribly irresponsible. And mm, But to think that you're qualified to do everything when you haven't really shown yourself to be qualified to do much of anything at all except manipulate. So just knowing that you're putting people in harm's way just because mm, you want to sort of try out this thing, it's like a game, but it's it's playing with fire. And to not have a sense of that is quite incredible. I feel like he also knew how to pick out talent. He felt it. He sensed it. He saw it. Like, I would say that would be one of his superpowers is that he he could feel people that had fervor, that had allegiance. And so, you know, if he's like, oh, let's start this midwifery program, he probably already knew a gynecologist or something or a doctor who was in the homeschooling program who maybe wrote him a letter. Like, I've been praying to God about like all these women that want to have abortions and I don't know what to do. So then Bill was probably like, oh, you're really passionate about that. Maybe you you should come up and start this program midwifery. Now, I'm not that's not exactly what happened, but I'm just saying, like, this is this is this, I think the scenarios, especially that I saw him with, that he would pull people that had energy passion, um, and again, this presence, and um, had some education. I always thought that was really interesting, too. The people that he would put in places of higher power did have educations, did have degrees and licenses, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that was just something else. Like um, One of the things he did that Chad alluded to was going into the public schools and teaching the character qualities. He also did it like cities of character and mayors. 
and governors. And then it, then he opened it up to international mayors of character. And I, when I was in Romania with him for the first trip, going back to the uh, the orphanages, we visited many orphanages. And he was trying to figure out how we could create orphanages, like character orphanages. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, I hope it doesn't include discipline. I hope it doesn't include them having to wear certain things. I hope it, you know, but again, what could I do? But just be the pretty puppet on his arm, you know, trying to show people like, see, look, I turned out great. You should totally give him these orphanages. It's it's awful knowing that I was like a, a, a show pony for him as this proof that, hey, look how great my programs are. Character orphanages? Okay, so, right? So just think about what a child might need in an orphanage, right? Beyond what Gothard could ever take care of. So to clarify on the character thing, Gothard taught that there were 49 character qualities that every Christian should exhibit, and they were everything from alertness, because the alert program, to self-control, to wisdom, to what have you. The thing is, each character quality came with an operational definition. So the operational definition was whatever IBLP said the definition of the word was. So for example, wisdom, you know, if you were to call someone wise, you would probably think that they had great insight or they had great knowledge that they could apply to their lives. The IBLP operational definition of wisdom was seeing life from God's point of view. That was their definition. We had to memorize that. Being wise. Yep. The IBLP definition of obedience, which is one of their 49 character qualities, is freedom to be creative under the protection of divinely appointed authorities. So you see how they switched the wording around there. Instead of being compliant to authorities, you're free to do what they tell you. And that's the only way you can be creative, is under their authoritative direction. He also had an opposite. So obedience versus, which is not how that works. <laughs> You know, the opposite, <laughs> the opposite word, what would be the opposite? What do you think the opposite of obedience would be? Disobedience? Yeah, disobedience. Yeah. Oh, no, it's willfulness. Oh. So it's obedience versus willfulness. And willfulness is not, it's not seen for, for us. And Chad, correct me if I'm wrong. Willfulness, the, the opposite is not seen as, oh, that's just the opposite of, of the word. That's the devil. This is the satanic ground that you would give to Satan. So if you are not obedient, you are willful. Therefore, you have given some of your autonomy, some of your mind and heart and soul over to Satan. So you can't be willful. We can't be the strong-willed child. I can't have any, any assertion or questioning. And that's just one of the 49. <laughs> That's a lot. And it, and yes, going back to sort of how do you make sense of all of this? Um, because it doesn't necessarily make sense. I mean, just that idea of you, you can do what you want as long as it's what I tell you to do. What? Okay. So that, what? I think, um, so going to the fact that I know we're almost done with time, but we could talk for four more days. So going to just finishing up uh, re regrettably. When we get to this idea of how to undo the programming, it's what a lot of people face. It's what a lot of people listening to this podcast are going to be looking for and kind of needing some support with just how you put a wedge 
in between sort of having a thought, having a difficulty, you know, whatever it is, whatever's the trigger point and having the automatic thinking come in and figuring out what to do with it and how to talk to it, how to address it, how to maybe displace it if it's really not yours or if it's really harming you and how to bring some new way of thinking in like, hmm, maybe this didn't happen to me that maybe something didn't work out, let's say, because I left or because God is punishing me or because I'm a bad person. But maybe there's randomness in the universe and maybe this wasn't going to be the right whatever for me anyway. And it's a good thing. So how you introduce new ideas and feel even safe to do so. And so I'm just wondering about that process of the detaching from old thinking and kind of sort of reattaching to new thinking. So Lindsay, I know I said I was going to bring that up with you. So we'll start with you and then go to Chad. I started out with having panic attacks at at about 40 years old. And it's amazing I didn't have them prior to 40, (laughs) given everything I had gone through, but I had internalized so much. Um, And I I tried to self-regulate my own panic attacks and anxiety, and it was just not working. And I just, I got very lucky to find an incredible therapist who uh, my dear friend Daniel actually Forced. I don't want to say forced, but he kept pushing, pushing, pushing. Like, Lindsay, you need to go to therapy, honey. You have been through so much. Like, it, you just, and I'm like, but I can't, I can't, I can't. There was just a, a panicked fear of speaking to a therapist. They're not going to understand. I'm going to have too much to explain. It's not going to make sense. There, it's, I, I, someone's going to tell me it's all my fault. And I already know that somehow, even though it makes no sense, it's going to be. And um, I ended up finding a therapist out here in Los Angeles that does EMDR therapy. And Oh my God. (laughs) After like we went through EMDR therapy for two years and I, it it blew my mind away. (laughs) I advocate for it to everybody and I know it's not for everyone, but it absolutely helped, especially with this indoctrination and the conditioning um, that was happening. I had a friend actually give me a document called the grief cycle that maybe you might be familiar with. And he was just like, you know, I get into the denial of everything that happened, and then I get really angry, and then I go into bargaining. And within a cult system, the bargaining, you bargain so much with yourself because you don't have the ability to upswing into the acceptance of what has happened. And then you're able to rise into readjusting, like you were saying, where you bring in your new thought processes. And with that readjustment, you're able to find that freedom and balance and acceptance of what has happened and you can actually move forward. I would get into like the bargaining and down into like depressive behavior. And then I would again, then I would go in denial and I would get angry. So I would just like dunk, 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 you know, and I I could not get out of that vicious cycle. And and until I learned to accept that what actually happened was not my fault and that there was nothing I really could have done as much as I my willful side of me says, but I could have I could have said more. I could have done more. I could not. And that survival instinct that I learned through therapy, that was the imposter syndrome that had to engage itself in order for me to survive the decades of abuse and just confusion of everything that did not make sense and was fighting against my body that knew everything was not right. Um, But my mind was so programmed that I, I couldn't break free of it. And so again, coming into therapy and learning the terms, being able to label what was actually happening to me and hearing how awful 
it was. Like, wait, you can't, I wouldn't call it sexual assault. I wouldn't call this sexual abuse from the spankings or the discipline or these, these just the labels that were being put on and defined for me shocked me even deeper. And then that got me even more angry. But this time I was able to take the anger and I did not bargain. I skipped the bargaining and I said, no, I accept that there's nothing else I could have done. And from that, like readjusting and going into the freedom was just like a skyrocket. <laughs> just boom. It fueled me into the stratosphere. And I was like, okay, IBLP, you are going down. <laughs> and I was like, mom and dad, you know, done. You know, like I, I wrote victim impact statements to my parents. I felt so strongly about this. Um, and I was like, enough is enough. I have bargained with these people for 23 years after leaving, and they still gaslight the shit out of me, and they still deny and defend everything that they've done. And they use the character qualities constantly with me, even in my 40s. Like, oh, the reason you work with the celebrity is because of that character we instilled in you. And this is how the Lord is blessing you. And I'm like, what the if you only could understand how much I've had to jump through hoops in my poor little soul and my own self-confidence, like they have no understanding of it, of the journey I've had to be through or gone through, and they never will. And that was the heartbreak, again, of accepting <laughs> instead of trying to bargain again, like, well, but if I say it the right way, the 84th time, maybe they'll understand what I'm saying. And I was like, I'm done with bargaining. I've accepted the fact that you've not done the work. And if you can't even love me enough to try to do the work, you'll never have the words to tell me that I need to hear. And that, again, like the grief of that, of having to say, my parents don't actually love me. They believe that they do based on Bill Gothard's definition of love, but it's not enough and it never can be until they heal themselves. So in writing these victim impact statements, I my parents are now separated, they're divorced, and I read them individually over the phone to them. And I it was one of the most terrifying and empowering things at the same time. And when I hung up, I was like, and now I move forward with my life. Like I can't, I have to put this behind me. You know, and it it did it did resurgent or, or it brought up a lot of um it brought up a lot of Stockholm syndrome after uh, several months of them not replying because I simply asked for two weeks. Give me give me two weeks before you come back with an answer because you need time and I need distance <laughs> from this very difficult thing I have read to you. They knew nothing about Bill's abuse. They knew nothing about a lot of different things in my life. And I was like, you've never really actually known me. And so I started to fear when they weren't responding. I was like, I've done something incredibly wrong. I started to flow back into bargaining. Oh, oh my goodness, I, I stepped out of turn. I'm no, I'm no longer being, I, I'm not loyal to them anymore. I wasn't obedient to them. And I'm like, oh my gosh, who, what, what? No, girl, you are this confident, free person. And it, but those, it's, I think it's going to take a very, very long time still to shake off some of those uh, shadows and whispers. And at least they're whispers now, and they're not full thought-stopping techniques anymore in myself. But I'm very hyper-aware of them now. As hyper-vigilant as I was in, in the cult, I'm now very hyper-aware of my own autonomy and hyper-aware of my own safety and protection. And I just, I feel like I have a force field now of like, no, you, this is my space. And I have the power to say, yes, you can be here and no, you cannot be. And it is okay for it to be on my terms. Your spirituality and your scripture does not work here <laughs> to lord it and will it over me. Oh, that's so powerful. 
you know, I think about people who will finally get the words together to express to their loved ones, especially to parents about what they've been through or why they've left. And sometimes, you know, people are too afraid of the response that they're going to get to say it. And just similar to you, I, I've told people, this is for you to say it. This is for you to hear yourself saying it. And this is for you to show that strength and clarity to you. If they happen to see that too, great. But if they're not able or not ready, that's not on you. And they can be wherever they need to be in their life to maybe still have blinders on because that's the way they survive. But there is something about you having a certain amount of strength that maybe they don't have. And I think at some point they may or may not, but still that idea of how you define love too, like, can they love you in the same way as you would want to be loved by a parent? Or is it this conditionality that isn't the way you love? You know, you might be in the world in just a different way emotionally than them. But I'm glad that you were able to say it. I'm sure, like, I can't imagine your hands not shaking and just, you know, having that moment. But I'm so happy for you that you got to hear yourself say it. And right, and honor your experience. I think that was the most important part. You know, when I was talking to my therapist about it, I was like, should I just send them the emails? And I'm like, I feel like that's the coward's way out somehow. And I have learned, like you were saying, um, my ears need to hear my voice. And that happens a lot now with me, especially when I was deeply in therapy. I had to constantly say things out loud to myself. Like, Lindsay, that is not an okay thought. You know, Lindsay, that is not true. Or for my body, I would literally talk to my body. I have IBS. I have lupus. I have like all kinds of stuff. And I would just be like, okay, sweetheart, tummy right now. Like, I understand this is hard. And I know we're flipping out for some reason, but I've got us. And I would say it out loud. And I felt, I felt a little loony doing it. But I would, it would calm down. It would start, I I always call it percolating, you know, and that anxiety would come up. And I'm like, I would just feel it kind of fizzle out. Like, look, we're, we're together now. We're not, we're not separate. So having to also integrate my body, hearing my own voice, instead of it being this, you know, just mental gymnastics in my head, I was able to actually calm myself down. And so hearing, hearing myself speak to my parents, um, as Chad, I'm sure will also (laughs) back up on this, that when we're in stressful situations, we become the most clear And I think that's just from trauma. And so speaking it out to them was very easy to be. I was like, this is the first time I've ever had this much power, not over them, but in myself. And I felt it so deeply that like, there's nothing you can say to me right now that will move me from how I feel my own truth and value. And to feel that they didn't hold that power over me anymore, I just, I felt so light and energized and bright and strong. But as soon as I hung up the phone, I was like, oh my God, like, what did I just do? <laughs> yeah. But I calmed down after that because I was like, okay, Lindsay, you just did the right thing. Hear yourself, know yourself. I, I Because of EMDR, I did some very slow tapping to just like regulate my body again. And it's like, you know what? This, this overreaction is actually joy. This wasn't panic. This wasn't fear. This was joy that I was true to me. And so I've had to, I've had to not only just redefine definitions like the character qualities, I've had to, I don't know, not even relearn. I've had to actually learn 
what my body responses are telling me because they've been so misregulated. Right. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. And it's also good for people to know that when you're leading up to doing something, you are having a swell of adrenaline that you need to engage with. And then as soon as it's done, you have an adrenaline drop and you can suddenly feel like you're going to fall apart. And blah. Uh, But that is just that roller coaster of chemicals. The, the ride helped you. And then when you get off the ride, it's like getting off a roller coaster, right? Like you're a like free fall. <laughs> right. It's a bit of yeah. a free fall, but it's still okay. And I also like that when you talk to yourself, you call yourself sweetheart. That's very nice. It's very caring, very maternal, right? It's very lovely. So, okay. And so to just finish up, Chad, go for it. And then we'll we'll unfortunately call it a day. Yeah, this is why I love uh, being on with Lindsay because this dovetails nicely into what into my advice for people who are navigating their way out. Uh, first of all, I preach the gospel of therapy, just therapy, therapy, therapy. Seriously, find yourself a therapist. It's okay. Healthy people go to therapy. And if you had any other physical malady, you go to a doctor. You know, your mind is no different. You know, individual help with a therapist that works for you is probably the best thing you could do for yourself. And another thing that really is personal to me, and this is something I mentioned in Shiny Happy People, that voice in the back of your head that says this is wrong when you're in these high control situations, that's right. And what they will do in these high control religions and cults is that they will tell you that that's Satan or that's a demon or that's some kind of worldly influence that's trying to lead you away from God. But that is actually you. That is the one thing that I've learned. That is your self-preservation. That is your innermost being, the part that they're trying to break. That is trying to help you and say, hey, this is wrong. You need to do something about this. And one of the things that has helped me heal more than anything else, and I had a therapist tell me one time uh, when I was talking about something that I learned, I just casually let slip something that, you know, I had learned in the cult. She said, whose voice did you hear that in right, right then? It's like, what do you mean? She's like, when you had that thought, whose voice was that? And I had to think about it. I was like, wow, that was my mom. I was like, yeah, exactly. So one thing that, you know, just one little takeaway that I think a lot of people could use is, you know, when you hear, <laughs> I, I know it sounds a little stigmatizing, you know, say like, oh, when you hear voices, but no, when, when you have those thoughts, when you have those thoughts in your mind that are telling you something about yourself or telling you something about your situation, ask yourself, whose voice am I hearing this in? It could very well be yours, or it could very well be the person who's trying to control you or is trying to tell you things to keep you in line. And when you start to differentiate between the two, that leads to a lot of healing, in my opinion. Right. Oh, I love it. That's such a beautiful way to end this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to both of you and for your insight, for your wisdom, for being open to sharing. And I'm so happy for both of you to see where you are in your lives and what you've overcome. You are a picture, both of you, of resilience. And it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for for giving us such a, a deep conversation. It, it means so much to be able to come on and speak with someone that has the depth of understanding that you do and the care and, I don't know, just the, the understanding of the deeper issues that are here. Like, it really means a lot to me. So thank you. My pleasure, really. It's a great thing to be able to see that it is possible for people to come through the fire in this way and then to also want to do what they can to help other people from being burned. So... Um, How wonderful. My pleasure. Hope to talk to you again. 
one more thing before you go. I could have talked to both of them for such a long time. Chad and Lindsay are so thoughtful and have so many very powerful things to say. They've been through so much. What I find really telling when I talk to people who have been through things that I think are tremendously unhealthy for them and can be frightening and overwhelming to their system, both their emotional systems as well as their physical systems, I think it happens almost across the board when I'm talking to clients like this, is that there is a detachment that just invariably has to take place. And as Lindsay said so tellingly, beautifully, kind of hauntingly, that she learned to have her body and her mind be separate from each other. It's a dangerous thing when that happens, of course, because there is a mind-body connection. So you become really detached from the self. When you're having certain symptoms, you might not notice them. You might not get help for them. When you're having certain emotions and you're feeling them in your body, you're not necessarily going to be in touch with what's going on. It causes disorientation. It causes derealization, depersonalization, and detachment. And it is sometimes a way just to survive a situation that really is destructive and that really is dangerous, where you really are put in harm's way. But it also, unfortunately, maintains that system where the perpetrators get away with it. Your job as the victim is just to figure out a way to handle those moments. But you don't rise up and fight the person. You don't call the police. You just learn how to survive. You learn how to displace the emotions and the physical pain. It was chilling when Chad said that he was introduced by his parents to people as the kid we beat the most. Now, can you imagine that that was said just as a matter of fact or maybe even as a matter of pride? But it shows an inherent lack of sensitivity, lack of caring about what that experience would be like for Chad or for anyone. It also shows a lack of taking responsibility. It also shows a lack of understanding of child development and what is necessary, and that it really is never necessary to hurt, to hit a child. When you also meet with Chad and talk to Chad, you realize what a sweet guy he is, what a thoughtful person he is. And so why would it ever be that he would need to have been so mistreated beyond the mistreatment that his siblings got. When you are raising kids, you learn that if a kid is quote-unquote acting out, whatever that means, however you define it, that there's often a reason. And your job as a parent, as a caregiver, is not just to become even more 
abusive. Your job as a parent is to sit that child down. If you know to do this, if the system will allow you to do this, which very often it doesn't in cults, and you say, what's going on? Why is it that you're having a hard time? Or what is it about what's happening here that's making you want to run or want to yell, want to do your thing? Let me understand. Not, what is wrong with you? And how can we control that part of you? You will never get to the root of it if you just get into trying to manage the behavior rather than understanding what is causing it. And when you have people like Lindsay and Chad who had to succumb to things and had to go along with things when they were young, you also have this spirit of independence, which helped them both leave at some point. But that spirit of independence is so threatening to controlling environments and controlling cult leaders, controlling religious leaders. But it is the spark that helps to kind of light that fire and hopefully keep it burning so that it can create that fuel that finally helps people feel brave enough to leave. But from what I've seen time and time again, The people who have left environments like this have usually had to go through the fire before leaving, really being mistreated, really being horribly labeled and diagnosed, and sometimes needing to go through exorcisms and whatever else if they think they're possessed. And that's why they're thinking differently and acting differently and wanting other things for themselves. These are, in a kind of a beautiful way, the black sheep of a dysfunctional family. The black sheep are very often the healthiest, the ones who really see what's going on, the ones who can step away and look, the ones who notice what's real, the ones who are the truth tellers, but the ones who are not necessarily welcome, the ones who are not necessarily accepted or acceptable, but they are the ones who hold a mirror up to what is happening. And sometimes that is valued and praised in healthy environments and in healthy families. But the person who holds up a mirror in an environment where the community does not want to see, then that mirror will be knocked down and broken because it's much easier than to keep going about your business when someone hasn't really pointed out the truth and you also are not open to it. So I really give Chad and Lindsay so much credit for that bravery that even when they held a mirror up to the people around them and they didn't want to look and see the truth, they were still able to hold that mirror up in front of themselves so they could see with their own eyes clearly what was really going on. So then they could make the decision they needed to make to leave, the educated, aware decision. And now they have a chance of having a happy life, even though they're dealing with post-trauma. So I wish them both well, and I wish everyone well, who has, again, come through that fire. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. 
We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.